been loving our study in the book of Colossians, and we continue today as we celebrate God's thanksgiving um, in our lives. Well, as Paul concludes this great treatise on the person and work of Jesus Christ, we saw last week that he ends with teaching us that Jesus is the reconciler, that through Jesus alone, by the blood of his cross alone, Jesus can bring us into a right relationship with God. You see, we stand alienated from God. We're hostile to him. We are lost in our sin. But Jesus came, and he came in his love, with his death, and his resurrection. So as we trust him, as we put our faith in him, he restores a right relationship with the Father. Jesus, through his death, eliminates our alienation. He brings us near to God. Our status as enemy, as hostile, is abolished. And we are now children of God. Our sin, the great barrier, has been removed, forgiven and vanquished by the cross of Christ. What we could never do, Jesus did for us. What thanksgiving fills our heart as we trust and we follow. That's the gospel. Pastor Timothy Keller said the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the gospel of reconciliation, of love, of transformation. This is the gospel of hope, of justification, of salvation. It is the gospel, this good news, the message of Jesus That Paul says there in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, that he has become its messenger. He is a minister of the gospel. The great privilege of every pastor is to be a minister of the gospel. It's to be a messenger of the good news. It was Paul's privilege. It is my privilege. And may I be ever so bold as to proclaim to you, it is your privilege. We don't have one minister at Poland Village Baptist Church. We don't even have two ministers at Poland Village Baptist Church. We have 120 ministers at Poland Village Baptist Church. This is the radical Protestant truth that came back alive through the Great Reformation some 500 years ago. There had been this insurmountable gulf placed between the so-called laity and the clergy. But guess what? The Bible doesn't teach that. Yes, of course, the Bible teaches that there's such a thing as being called in the ministry and actually serving as a pastor of a church. But the pastor is not somehow separated or above anybody else. First Timothy two, five through six says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. There is only one. Only one who stands between you and God, and that is Jesus. He alone is your high priest. He is the mediator. He is the intercessor. He alone is the one you go to and go through to not only begin your relationship with God, but to maintain a right relationship with God. And First Peter calls all believers a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. The Bible teaches that in actuality, You are your own priest. In theology, it's called the priesthood of the believer. You 
are individually responsible for your own relationship with God. You are individually responsible for your own relationship with God. As priests, we are to present our bodies, our lives, as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The greatest imaginable worship to God is available to every believer. We're to come to God with our own prayers. Numerous passages challenge believers to pray for themselves and to beseech God for their own forgiveness of sins. From the Lord's model prayer to Romans 10, 9 and 10 to 1 John 1, 9, where it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the death of Christ, remember this, the veil was torn in the temple. That separated and the most holy place was there exposed for all to see. Symbolizing that all may enter directly into the presence of our God. The greatest imaginable intimacy with God is available to every believer. You're to learn for yourselves what the Bible teaches. You are responsible to develop for yourself the necessary skills to understand, interpret, and to live the truth of the Bible. John tells his readers in 1 John chapter 2 that they know the truth because they have the Holy Spirit in them who teaches them the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul teaches his readers that they can freely understand what God has given to them because of the Holy Spirit. The natural man rejects it as folly. But the spiritual man understands them because they're spiritually discerned. Colossians 3.16 commands us to teach and admonish one another. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 and 13 rebukes his readers because they have not progressed from the basic principles of God to the more mature discernment of God. They're still on milk, unskilled in the word of righteousness. Rather, they're on solid food, maturing in Christ. And that great verse in 2 Timothy 2.15 that challenges all of us to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who needs not to be ashamed, who rightly handles, who correctly interprets the word of truth. The greatest imaginable understanding of God is available to every believer. There is no distinction between clergy and lady. We are all Christians. We are all priests. We are all on the same footing before the cross. This is fundamental and important to understand. Though there are differing functions within the body of Christ, we are equally part of the body of Christ, the equal privilege and with equal responsibility. I am not more responsible to follow the Great Commission than you are. You are not less responsible to love one another than I am. We are together equally as one body of Christ, you and me, responsible to sacrifice and to pray and to learn and to obey. Someday, I'm going to stand before God and give account of my actions. And guess what? Someday, you are going to stand before God and give account for your actions. You see, we have equal access, equal privilege, Equal in responsibility. 
So how many ministers of the gospel do we have at Poland Village Baptist Church? Our budget says two. God's word says 120. I think we'll go with God's word on that one. What's the most basic job description for a pastor given in the Bible? Ephesians 4.12. Pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up of the body of Christ. The pastor is not the alone minister doing the ministry, but he's to equip the church, the fellow priests, the saints, for them to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ together. We are all called. We are all called to be full-time ministers. Every single one of us, whether you actually serve as a pastor or a missionary as your profession or not. God has made you a priest, and as his priest, you are to be serving him with your whole life. Now, your profession might not be pastor or missionary, but the occupation of your life is priest, servant of God. So as Paul says the gospel has set him apart as a minister, so has it you. It has set you apart and me apart. As ministers, the things Paul lists that he does for the church are things we all should do for the church. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter one. Follow along now as I read, starting at verse 24. The scripture says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father, we pray now that your word, through your spirit, might come alive and challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to look at four ways that Paul was a minister and used his example to inspire and challenge each of us as ministers for Christ. The reason we minister. So often the the very word itself helps us to understand what the Bible is teaching. The word minister in the Greek is the Greek word diakonos. We're familiar with that Greek word. From that Greek word we get our English word deacon. In its general use, it simply means servant. Of the 29 times that this noun appears in the New Testament, it's translated servant 19 times, minister seven times, and deacon three times. You see, to minister is to serve. To be a minister of the gospel is to be a servant of the gospel. To be a minister of the church, as Paul says in verse 25, is to be a servant of the church. There are capital M ministers. There are capital D deacons that make up the leadership of the church. 
But one of the reasons we're all ministers is that we're all called to be servants. We're all called to be servants of the gospel, to be servants of the church, and to be servants of each other. One of the things we say, especially on Veterans Day, to, to our military men, we'll come up to them and we'll shake their hand and we'll say, thank you for your service. Or we'll ask, you know, what branch of the service did you serve in? You know, those same terms, that same kind of sentiment could apply to each of us as we serve each other in and through Jesus Christ. We are called to the service, the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another reason we minister is because God has given us a stewardship, a stewardship to each one of us. A steward is someone who takes care of somebody else's stuff. He doesn't own it. He's stewarding it. He's managing it for the owner. God had given Paul a stewardship. He was to steward the gospel. He was a steward of the church. It wasn't his. The author and the originator is Jesus. Paul was to manage what God had given him to the best of his ability, promoting the Lord's agenda and his plan. Paul was given a great stewardship as an apostle. None of us have ever come close to carrying the weight of managing God's plan like that. But nonetheless, each one of us are stewards. We're all stewards. God has invested his plan, his gospel, his mission into you and into me. That each one of us would live it out throughout our lives to further God's purpose and plan. One person wrote, stewardship acknowledges in practice that we do not have the right of control over ourselves or over our property. God has that control. It means as stewards of God, we are managers of what belongs to God. That we are under his constant authority as we administer his affairs. Faithful stewardship means that we faithfully acknowledge we are not our own, but belong to Christ the Lord who gave himself for us. One of the reasons we minister, one of the reasons we serve our God by serving each other is because we have been given, you and me, a stewardship, a stewardship in the gospel, a stewardship of his church, a stewardship of God's word. One of the main reasons God has made each of us a steward of his plan, as verse 25 says, is to make God's word fully known. The work of a steward is to do the Lord's bidding, to do the Lord's will with what has been entrusted to us. We have been entrusted with the very word of God. It's not ours, but it's our responsibility to make it fully known. It's our responsibility to make it fully known within the church, within the community, and throughout our world. You see, we as ministers, as servants, as stewards of God, it is our privilege, it's the privilege of our lives to not live for our own end, our own goals, our own purpose. It is our privilege, it is our duty to live our lives for God's end, for God's goals, for God's purpose. Maybe today you need to come to grips with the fact that you are a minister. God has called you into his ministry. God has called you into his service. God has given you a stewardship, a responsibility to do his will with his word in his world. So how are you doing today as a minister of the gospel? How are you doing today as a servant 
of his church. How are you doing today as a steward of God's word? Next, we see the challenge of ministering. Because we all know, right, that, that ministry can be challenging. Anybody here think that ministry is easy? Anybody here think that putting God's plan and his will first in your life is simple? Anybody here think that putting other people's needs first is painless? We all know it's hard. We all know it's difficult. We all know that you will often go unnoticed and even be taken for granted. And all you have to do is ask your mom. Right? Is there ever a greater example of a servant who serves putting other people's needs first, all the while getting very little recognition and instead often feeling like they're being taken advantage of. You see, one of the challenges we all have of being a minister is we're a servant. And being a servant is hard. Look at what Paul says there at the beginning of verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. To put other people first, to put God's agenda first, to live for the sake of others is to experience yourself as second or last to experience sacrifice and suffering. If you put God's agenda first in your life, you're going to suffer real difficulties and challenges. Putting God first as a servant in your life at his church in your finances will change the way you spend your money. Putting God first as a servant of his gospel in your time will change the way you invest your time. Putting God first as a servant of his word with your talents will change the way you invest your abilities. If your goal is to exalt Jesus Christ in every area of your life, that often means sacrifice and even suffering. And yet, Paul said that this suffering for Jesus actually caused him to rejoice. He rejoiced in his suffering. He rejoiced in his afflictions. Not because the suffering was great. The suffering wasn't fun. He rejoiced because God's cause was being advanced. He rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the church because his sacrifice furthered the cause of Jesus Christ. Paul believed that if the end result was that Christ was glorified, then he rejoiced. Paul believed that if the end result was that the church was strengthened, then he rejoiced. You see, he thought the church was worth the struggle. He thought the church was worth his toil. He thought the church was worth his sacrifice because that is what it means to be a minister, a servant of the gospel. We are worth it. His difficulties affected him, but they weren't about him. His suffering affected him, but it wasn't about him. He could rejoice in suffering because they helped other people. Because he helped the church. Because he gave his sufferings in service of Jesus Christ. Is that how you look at your sacrifices, your sufferings, your labor as a fellow minister of the church? Can you see the importance, the value of church, of each other? Don't you think we're worth it? Even in the light of the sacrifices you have to make to be a sold-out minister for Jesus Christ, the sufferings are worth it because we rejoice in the outcome that furthers Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 24, In my flesh 
I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, folks, many, 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 many have come to this passage and have totally messed up what this verse means. In what way is Paul filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? How is it even possible, right, for there to be a lacking in Christ's afflictions? At the heart of the issue is, what does Christ's afflictions mean? Many trip over what Christ's afflictions mean in this passage because they wrongly apply it to his work of redemption and salvation. They say that Christ's afflictions are lacking in salvation, thus it requires me to fill up what he is lacking. Therefore, it's not just Jesus alone that saves my soul, but I must fill up what Jesus is lacking with my own works so that I can save my soul. That is totally false. That is totally erroneous. And that's not at all what this passage is teaching. In no way was Christ's redemptive afflictions lacking in any sense in which we would need to add anything to them for our own salvation. The Bible never teaches that. This passage does not teach that. How do we know that? Well, by the very context of this passage, if you just look up a few verses in uh, verses 20 and 22, where it's talking about the work of reconciliation, Paul teaches us that it's accomplished how? By the blood of Jesus Christ. It's accomplished how? By his death on the cross. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says that the record of our debt that stood against us was canceled how? When it was nailed to the cross. You see, when Paul is talking about the redemptive work of Christ, in every context, and in this context especially, he teaches as he always does, that is always and only, was completely accomplished by Jesus Christ, his shed blood and death on the cross. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ to somehow earn your own salvation. It's complete heresy to teach anything else. Anathema. Not only does the context teach so clearly that salvation is only wrought through the sacrificial death of Jesus. But the verse itself tells us what Christ's afflictions are. Look closely at verse 24. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. The context is not about Christ's redemptive afflictions, but clearly about Christ's body, the church. Commentators have said the sacrificial sufferings of Christ are over, but his body, the church, experiences suffering as it stands for the faith. The head of the church in heaven feels the suffering that his people endure. Paul was taking his turn in sharing these afflictions, and others would follow in his train. But Paul did not complain. Instead, we, he says in 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul was not speaking of salvation, but of service. Christ's suffering alone procures salvation. But it is a believer's privilege to suffer for Christ in service for Christ. Paul isn't saying Jesus' suffering on the cross was insufficient, but rather that he was enduring suffering on behalf of Christ. The world hated Jesus Christ. 
And now that he's not around to be able to persecute him, they persecute his followers. This person wrote, Paul's attitude is, Jesus took the blows meant for me, I'll take the blows meant for him. That's a great quote. Jesus took the blows meant for me, now I'll take the blows meant for him. See, so connected are believers with our Lord, he as the head, we as his body, that as we endure suffering, heaven feels it. Do you remember that? Do you remember what Jesus said to Paul, his conversion experience on that road to Damascus? What did he say? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus had already died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. So how could Paul be persecuting Jesus? Because as Paul persecuted the church, he was persecuting Jesus. It's exactly how closely connected the church, the body, is to to Christ, its head. Each one of us as a body of Christ, we are called to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. For the sake of one another, for the sake of his body, his church, we are challenged to to step up and to endure hardship, to bear suffering, to persist during adversity, so that the church, Jesus Christ, his plan, his purpose, his mission would be advanced. It is our privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. In it, we can actually rejoice. So the question comes to us, how are we doing in sharing in the sufferings of Christ on behalf of his church? The goal of Jesus is not to make you healthy and wealthy. The goal of Jesus isn't to make you comfy and cozy. The goal of Jesus isn't to give you what you want. The goal of Jesus for all of his servants, for all of us as ministers to him, is for us to give him what he wants. We serve him. He doesn't serve us. His goal is to put his work, his plan, his agenda, his redemption, his word, his mission, first of all, in every area of our lives, even to the point of hardship and sacrifice and suffering. His goal needs to be our goal. So how are you doing in sharing in the sufferings of Christ on behalf of his church as you put his mission first in every area of your life? Next, we see the mystery of our ministry in verses 26 and 27. It says, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's important to remember when we see this word mystery in the Bible. It doesn't mean someone's going around gathering up a whole bunch of clues And then they guess, you know, about what happened at the end. A biblical mystery is something that was hidden or unclear in the past that God has now revealed and made known to us. What is this mystery that was hidden for ages and for generations, but now God has revealed? It's called the church. It's this time between the two advents of Christ. It's this age between Christ coming as a sacrificing son and Christ coming as a conquering King. It is this that the Gentiles are included in the family of God is that Christ is the Messiah to the Gentiles as much as he is to the Jews, that by faith, God has made us all one, whether Jews or Gentiles, male or female, one family 
His body, the church, Christ in us. One commentator wrote, We've, we who have grown up in a somewhat Christian surroundings have a tendency to take all of this for granted. But think of the excitement that this message must have generated in a church composed of new believers who had no background in the church. Once they were outside the covenants of God, but now they're members of his family. Once they were living in spiritual ignorance and death, but now they're alive and sharing in his riches of God's wisdom in Christ. Once they had no hope, but now they have a glorious hope because Christ now lived within. It is this very mystery that has been revealed that we're living today right now. We who had no hope, now have hope because Jesus has included us in this family. It's important for us to remember that what we are experiencing today, this thing we call church, was a radical revelation of God that has literally changed the world. Christ in us. Next we see the goal of our ministry in verses 28 and 29. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, Paul says, I'm toiling, I'm struggling, and all of his energy. What's the goal of our ministry? What's the goal of our service to Christ? What's the goal of serving one another? It's to help each other grow to be mature in Christ. Why did you come to church today? Why do you serve God in church? Well, first of all, Of course we came and we serve out of heart of worship, out of heart of gratitude and thanksgiving for all that Jesus has done for us. But perhaps second to that, we came and we serve to help each other, to help each other grow, to help each other mature in Christ. Have you ever thought that one of the main reasons you are here today is not just so that you will grow to maturity in Christ, but that so those around you would grow to maturity in Christ. You are here today not just to get fed from God's word yourself, but to be used of God to help and encourage and instruct, to pray for, to spur on those around you in Christ. Because you didn't come to church today just to be ministered to, because you're ministers. And as ministers, you come to church to minister and to serve others. Jesus said in Ephesians 4, he's called all of us to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body. This is how that ends. Until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of Man, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's ministers ministering to each other in a church till we all reach together maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says he strives to help people gain spiritual maturity. He describes it in three ways. First, by proclaiming Jesus. It's all about him. Learning to love him and live like him. Proclaim Jesus, he says. Him we proclaim. Second, he warns everyone. Proclaiming what is false and what to avoid. It is our duty and our responsibility to warn people of sin and its consequences, to warn people of false doctrine and its consequences, to warn people of the schemes of the devil and its consequences. Knowing what we are not to do, what we are to avoid, is just as important 
as knowing what we are to do. That's the third way he helps people come to maturity is by teaching everyone. It's not enough to warn people. We must also teach them the positive truths of the word of God. Think about this. How far would you go in your travels if all the highway signs only told you where the roads weren't going? It's necessary to point others to Christ, proclaim him, to warn each other about the dangers that are ahead and to teach each other the solid, life-giving doctrine of our inerrant scriptures. That's what serving one another looks like. Proclaiming Jesus, warning one another, teaching one another. And how are we to do this? Paul says we're to toil. We're to labor. We're to struggle. We're to strive with all of his energy that powerfully works within us. Whose energy? Isn't that great? Whose energy? It's his energy. Whose energy has given us the ability? It's Jesus' energy. It's his power that so mightily works within us that gives us the ability to serve him and to serve others. So how are we all supposed to minister? We're supposed to toil. We're supposed to work. We're supposed to labor as hard as we can, struggling and striving with all of his energy as he powerfully works it out within us. You see, it's a divine partnership. We, with our wills and our passions, combined with God's will and God's ability, serving and ministering to one another in our world. Do you see it? Do you see it? When, when we minister for others' sake, when we sacrifice for others' sake, when we spur one another on to maturity, you're doing the very work of God that he energizes within you to do his plan, his purpose, his power. Do you want to know what it's like to be used of God? Minister. Serve. Serve others. Help them grow in their maturity in Christ. This letter was written by Southern Baptist missionary to Iraq, Karen Watson, prior to leaving for the Middle East. The letter was dated March 7, 2003. Karen was killed, along with four other missionaries, on March 15, 2004. The letter says, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, You should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as, as much as possible, my, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to persevere in the work. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and the spiritual being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors in regards to any service. Keep it small and simple, she said. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. Be bold. Preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. She said, care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. 
I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too and my church family in his care, Karen. Or perhaps God has not called you to the profession of a pastor or a missionary. But how awesome would that be if he does? If he raises within our midst those called to be a pastor or a missionary. But what we know this morning is something very important. That he has called you. Each one of us. You and me. To be ministers. To serve him. To serve his church. To serve his people. We all. You and me are supposed to care more than some think is wise. You and me, we're supposed to risk more for Jesus Christ than some think are safe. We're supposed to dream more than some think is practical. We're supposed to expect more through the power of the Holy Spirit using us than some think is possible. Is that you? Is that me? Do these stirring words describe our passion as a minister, as a servant of Jesus Christ? Don't hold back today. Today is your day to step forward. Today is your day to, by faith, accept your calling as a sold-out, on-fire minister for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this, this passage is awesome. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenge. I embrace it. I thank you for it. And I I pray for each one of us that we would step forward, me, my family, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, the word of life leaders, the youth leaders, that we would all just step forward by faith, accepting your calling in our lives as sold out, on fire, minister. For Jesus Christ, may it be in Jesus' name. Amen.